Welcome to Trine Days, The Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us are Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould, husband and wife and co-authors of The Valediction, Three Nights of Desmond, about America's manipulation and exploitation of Afghanistan, begun in the 1970s. Paul and Liz got the first visas to enter Afghanistan in 1981, after all Western media was expelled from the country after the Soviet Union invaded in 1979. They produced two television documentaries about Afghanistan and wrote three previous books, Invisible History, Afghanistan's Untold Story, Crossing Zero, the AFPAC War at the Turning Point of American Empire, and The Voice, an esoteric adventure story. Paul, Liz, and Chris, it's great to be with you all. It's great to be Thank here. Thank you. Thank you. I, I picked the uh, name The Journey uh, for this podcast for a, a couple of uh, reasons, because I had to take a journey uh, to understand, you know, uh, what my daddy told me and just, you know, what, what was going on with the world. And then I realized that, you know, not only myself had to take a journey, but, you know, pretty much all of us had to had to take a journey because you know uh, they they sent us off to school and and church and all of this stuff and 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 we uh, grew up and found out well they they didn't tell us all of the things that were going on and we had to learn some things and you find out things that you didn't know were if, if they were true or not but you, you know it it you know that what is happening isn't right you know i mean i i would have dropped looking at this if i hadn't have found confirmation because it's not always fun being called a conspiracy theorist and, and, and all these names. And, and then, you know, the first people I found that I could actually talk to and, and would, you know, have some understandings were, were people that had a very wide view uh, of things. Okay. The other thing that I found is that when people had children, okay, it really started to open up their eyes about what the actions that we're doing, what it means for their future. Why are we here if not to make a better world for our children? To me, that's, you know, that's, that's one of our highest callings. My journey has been incredible and I, I'm, I'm very happy that I'm, I'm generally a lucky fella. What's your journey been? Well, I have to say, Chris, I, I think you articulated a lot of what we also stumbled onto too in about the same way. Um, we, we really never expected uh, when we got involved with Afghanistan, you know, back in, it was really, you know, when the Soviet invasion happened in 79, you know, we were in Washington dealing, uh, not in Washington, but do, doing stories about what was going on in Washington, especially about detente and salt and the Carter, you know, presidency was bringing in all this supposed peace and we're going in a new direction. And what happened on December 27th, 1979, the whole idea of, of left progressive, uh, moving away from military spending as the only solution and moving more into actually economic competition, which seemed to be very appealing, especially after the tragedy of the Vietnam War and what it had done to the American economy uh, and the ravages, uh, you know, in our cities and, and you know, and in, in, in the country. Uh, and, you know, and we were sh so shocked at this disillusionment. It was as if the idea of negotiation, the idea of a detente, which was 
actually a, a progressive process coming out of the 60s into the 70s under a number of presidencies, it suddenly evaporated. And President Carter referred to it as the greatest threat to peace since the Second World War. So, you know, we just wondered how in the where did this come from, especially when you have to realize Afghanistan was actually practically unknown. It was a tiny country on the Soviet Union's southern border. So the reaction of Carter seemed so over the top and it was instant and the whole thing just didn't add up. So, you know, when you talk about the journey, but we then ultimately discovered that, you know, as we entered into it, there was so many different levels that then confronted us, okay? The political level was one. Then we get involved as journalists, you know, a year and a half <laughs> later, and we discover that the entire journalistic experience at the network level is completely framed and completely on its own agenda. And what they intended to do with what we brought back was try to find a way to refer to the events in Afghanistan as Russia's Vietnam. And that's what we ultimately began to realize. So I, again, you know, but each stage has revealed something different. So as we kept with the story and, and to even now, every, it's like every decade, something new emerged that confronted us, <laughs> as you said, Chris. <laughs> you guys were really trying to quote unquote, play their game, okay, work with the facts, look at the facts, try and say, oh, well, you know, maybe you guys aren't thinking about this right and blah, 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 blah. But you finally came to the conclusion that, you know, it was kind of like walking on quicksand, you know? And, and so uh, uh, when did you start to, uh, you know, go beyond, behind the door, you might say, look, look behind the door. Well, you know, it's, um, I, was a, I was a singer when I was a kid and, and also an athlete. So I kind of got um, both sides of the, of the realm. I got picked for the Boston Opera Company when I was a boy soprano at 12 years old. And uh, I had been singing in the choir and I'd been singing solos and getting paid as a performer since I was 10 years old. So it was like, you know, it was a nice little added income. And the fact is, is that, um, you know, I, I got to see the world from almost as a professional singer at a very early age, but I'm also an athlete too. My mother used to say, now, whatever you do, Paul, don't fight, don't be known as a tough guy. You know, when you're a singer and you're out there, the, the girls kind of like, they like you. And, and the guys, their, their boyfriends don't like you because their girlfriends like you. I had to learn to defend myself. I came to take a very kind of aggressive attitude, especially as a football player, um, uh, about how to deal with problems. And as I got older, um, you know, I, I just started, I had an aunt who lived in Harvard Square and my father had a, had a drugstore down the street. I kind of, I was around the area a lot and I found Harvard Square to be kind of cool back in the 1960s. It a lot of bookstores there. A lot of bookstores, oh, wonderful bookstores, Reading International and Nini's Corner and all kinds of places. And I eventually over time began, I started reading in high school, I started pulling foreign policy and foreign affairs and all these different think tanks all put out their own publication. So I started reading this stuff. So I, I kind of started to develop, a, you know, a, a, my own attitude about what was really going on in the world at a very early age. And as you re recall, Chris and, and Bruce, uh, you know, in the 1960s, we were all under the, the auspices of the draft board. You had to prove to the draft board that you were 
you know, you could get a, a, a two-year deferment from the draft uh, board, and uh, that would give you um, a little breathing space anyway. They would look at your grades. They would see if you were screwing up or not, and if you, if you weren't towing the line, you, you'd lose your status. I get to the end of my the first semester when I, I was a freshman at Boston University. I get in there. My father had died when I was 17, so and uh, uh, in of a heart attack in, in the spring of 1967, 68. So anyway, so I, I went into Boston University as a student. The end of the first semester comes, and I get called into. Uh, I'm doing a lot of writing, and I get called into my uh, faculty advisor's uh, uh, home, and he says, um, he says, hey, he asked me, have you ever considered working for your government? And I thought to myself, no, I haven't really <laughs> considered it at all. So anyway, so he said, well, you know, he said, do you have anything against your government? Are you, are you opposed to the policies of the United States? And I said, not particularly. Uh, I said, he said, well, how do you feel about the Vietnam War? I said, I don't think we're going to win it. I just don't think this is not my father's war. This is, he was in World War II, and I just don't think this is going to work. Certainly not after the Tet Offensive. So anyway, so he said, well, you know, he said, you should consider maybe the maybe a place for you in your government someplace. So I said, well, you know, the funny thing about that, just this afternoon, I read in the Boston Globe this morning that they were holding open auditions for the rock musical Hair downtown at the Wilbur Theater. I signed up to do an audition. And he says, oh, you don't want to do something like that, something frivolous and unimportant like Hair. He said, you've got more serious things cut out for you than that. And I went, oh, well, anyway. So I went down, it took me 10 days to get the audition, I get the audition, and lo and behold, they give me the lead. They gave me the role of Claude. Needless to say, that was a big change in my life. At any rate, uh, and they had warned me, my faculty, my, my advisors in high school had warned me before I went to BU, they said, did you know that BU has the largest contingent of SDS, Students for Democratic Society, in the entire country? Did you realize how radical that school is? And you know, I, had to, I have to admit, at, at, at 18 years old or 17 and a half, I didn't even know what SDS was. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, I, I get to be you. And of course, you know, there's protests everywhere, every day. It's totally crazy. I mean, it's like bomb threats. And I walk into, I walk into class one morning at Hayden Hall, and, and there's like broken chairs and blood on the wall. And it's like blood on the floor. I said, what the heck happened here? And somebody comes over and says, Mark Rudd broke away from the main body of SDS last night and formed the Weatherman faction. So he said that, so he said, that's what this was all about. So needless to say, they had a sign up on the wall that said, class is canceled today. So this was the kind of experience I was having at BU. And so when I get the role, uh, I get the role uh, as Claude and Hare, I thought to myself, I'm not missing anything at Boston University anyway right at the moment, I might as well be getting paid for it and I can use the money. So I did and I took it and it was a, the most amazing, life-changing, altering experience I'd ever had. I mean- well, let, let, me, let me interrupt here. What, what was it like being on stage and, and doing hair? You know, what, were you a hippie before hair or were you a hippie after hair? I mean, you were just an actor anyway, but what, what did you think of hair and how was it like being on stage? Well, you know, I was anything but a hippie, believe me. I was a uh, 
classic middle-class kid chinos, um, you know, uh, wingtips in high school, penny loafers, and Pat Boone, you know, it was, that was the kind of experience I grew up in. I mean, really, I was 10 years off. And my parents, of course, their values were 1920s and 1930s values. And my parents were, you know, in their 50s, late 50s, by the time I got to high school. So, you know, it was a complete, it was a different world for me. And so as a result of that, I had a completely different perspective. So getting into hair, I knew the music. Uh, I, I in fact, a my friend of mine, the drummer in a band I was in in high school, asked me one day in 1967, right after I'd got my license, he said, there's a new group called The Doors up at Hampton Beach showing up on Saturday night and they're playing at the casino. Do you want to go up? He said, can you get the car to go up? And I said, oh, I'm sick of these one night stand bands. I said, they're really terrible, like the incense and peppermints and that sort of thing. And we had played a bunch of different places where these one, you know, one hit wonder bands came in. And I said, all we know is the, about The Doors is light my fire. I said, I don't want to waste five bucks on another one of these uh, one hit wonder bands. And he goes, no, I've, I've heard through the grapevine that they're good. They're really different. So we go up, we tool up in my father's 1966 white Ford custom. And uh, we get up there and we go in not knowing what to expect. Jim Morrison shows up in his black leather and he performs songs from both his first two albums, right? It was his first tour to the, uh, to the East Coast. And everybody in the entire audience stood there with their mouths hanging open. What is this? This is unbelievable. And he did, he finishes it with, this is the end. Crump. He jumps up in the air, collapses on the stage. The lights go down and the lights come up. They're gone. And we looked at, I looked at my, my friend and I said, I think we just had a religious experience. <laughs> This must have been what people felt like when they heard Jesus Christ preaching from the mount. I, I said, it's got to be. I said, I've never experienced. I've been singing since I was a little kid. And I said, I've never seen anything like this before. Boston Opera Company, you know, uh, uh, Beverly Sills was in the opera I was in, you know, didn't sound like this. So anyway, Jim Morrison turns out to be more than just a one hit wonder. He, he becomes a cult figure within a very short period of time. No, I had a similar experience. I, I stumbled into uh, Monterey Pop, and I had I had no money, and I'm looking around the ground for a dime to buy an orange or an apple, and I see this envelope, and it, it says Jones written on it, and I pick it up, and inside there's a, a ticket to get in, and so I get to go in and and watch these bands, and you know the Who came on, smash their instruments. And then uh, Hendrix came on. You know, I didn't even realize that I had seen Hendrix until I saw the movie later on, because it was just so blown away. Oh, but, Monterey Pop, that was the big, that was the big thing back then. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I mean, the sixties was, was in the sixties and the early seventies was was quite a time, and you know, it's been my posit a lot, a lot that you know the the powers that be, the people in the shadows, have been playing a lot of, of generational warfare. Uh, you know, they don't want us talking to our parents and, and they, they like this conflict because it allows them to just deal with uh, people who are, you know, on their own instead of instead of united, you know, and, and that's what, you know, we're, we're hope to be. So yeah. you guys went to Afghanistan and, and basically were trying to uh, counter 
or, or at least expand or, or you know, dissect, look at the narrative that was being uh, put out there. How long did it take you to realize that it was a bunch of lies? It was actually our first experience with CBS News that made it very clear to us. We, but what we didn't realize at that point is, is the, you know, that, you know, I mean, when we got the visa, you know, for, and, and actually set out to find a network to work with, CBS literally wanted it instantly. We very quickly discovered uh, when we came back with footage that did not match their their desired perception, which, as I mentioned before, they wanted Russia's Vietnam, which meant they wanted Cavill crawling with Russian soldiers, proving that they were, you know, in, investing more and more, and they were going to get trapped in the same crisis the United States got trapped in. They now, wanted you to support the propaganda. Right. Yes, oh, exactly. yeah. Well, but what's interesting is that what we also figured out is they also do want to know what's going on for real. So people like us are used for that purpose, but they never put an honest story out about it. And that's what we witnessed with CBS. Although they did put a story, they really struggled to try to turn it into something that it wasn't. We called the producer. We, they, they gave us a producer to work with. And uh, so I called the producer. They had the footage for a almost a month yeah. after we got back. They were struggling so hard. <laughs> and I called up the, I called up the producer um, that we had you know, sat for a couple of days with going through all the material. I called her up after three weeks and I said, or four weeks, and I said, um, what's, what, are you gonna use this stuff or not? And she said, I wish I had never heard the word Afghanistan in my life. She said, do you realize that every, she said, every vice president in the front office has been down here on my case since I started editing this story. They are so afraid of what, what, what the flack they're gonna get out of Washington that they don't, they, they're all editing, they're doing the editing for me. So I said, well, what do you, what's gonna happen? She says, call me back tomorrow morning and I'll let you know. She said, what's gonna happen? She said, if we don't do it by the end of this week, we probably won't do anything. So call back the next morning and she said, we heard that ABC is gonna be doing a story on the evening news. So we have our exclusive for, that you gave us. So we're gonna do your story tonight. So they had to make some decisions about what to do. So they cut it down that evening on the CBS evening news with Dan Rather. Uh, they did a seven minute piece about what we saw and what they had gotten. They had gotten hold of some Soviet footage that the Soviets had put out about what they were doing there what life in the streets was like and what life in the countryside was like. And basically they turned the story into they intercut my footage with the Soviet footage. Well, they actually made a very specific point though that's clearly part of the way they twist things up. They implied that we were showing them propaganda because of course the Soviets only show propaganda. So since our footage looked like the Soviet footage, ours must've been prop. That's the implication that they gave to the story. That was the whole wow. gist of the story. Yeah. Instead of, you know, instead yeah. of talking about the things that we did see, yeah. about the schools that were being burned down by the Mujahideen, by the, the women that were being having acid thrown in their faces, by the all the different things that we saw, that we experienced, uh, the power lines that were being destroyed, how the Mujahideen were coming in and leveling villages and things. And and very much intentionally destroying <laughs> schools where at whenever there right. were females involved with education. And not just females. It was all, all, well, all education, but, specifically, but they clearly specifically were going female. after. So, so that, that was exactly what they didn't want to see. So anyway, but they did but that, do a story 
and they did cut it in such a way that they made their executives happy, I guess. And, and, well, uh, what we were very impressed with, though, Fared Zarif, who was the uh, ambassador to was the charge, I think, at the time, but he is the man at the UN headquarters that we negotiated the visa with, who sent it to Kabul to finally get that through. So we you know, talked to him about what he thought about the story. He said it wasn't bad. Now, this is someone, you know, talk about sophisticated. This is someone who appreciated that we got more out of these people than a lot of people could have. So even though it wasn't what we would have liked, we still did get something out of them. They and weren't you know, able to completely corrupt. It them. just so irks me today when I see this whole issue about free speech and censorship of the, of the media in this country. We had to prove absolutely everything we saw was real and not, did not involve any kind of Afghan censorship or Soviet censorship or anything else. Censorship was a bad word. Yeah. And, and the fact was is that we had to prove it again and again and again, that this is what I saw, this is how I saw it. This was not being influenced by the government at all. I mean, they, you know, they, they took the attitude that there was just, you know, that they had put up, they created Potemkin villages for us to see and film right. and, and things like that, you know, that all these things were just phony. Right, but right. that did change. That did change with yeah. the second trip, yeah. very specifically, because um, we went into Afghanistan with Roger Fisher from the Harvard Negotiation Project to really try to see if it would be possible to push the negotiation process. <clears throat> and Roger had already been approached. He was an internationally recognized negotiator. The Afghans well, knew him well, and certainly all of the major um, broadcast networks knew Roger very well. He was called on constantly beyond Nightline, which was the ABC program that we were doing this for. And it was really quite fascinating to see the exact same process in its own way happen at ABC that happened at CBS. So you can you get a, a sense about when the, the narrative is being framed before the networks make a move, okay? They might come out with something that is a little bit different than what the narrative ends up being. Right. And it's, it, in fact, there was an interesting story in the Columbia Journalism Review in 1980 that did an analysis of what happened to the Afghan story when Dan Rather ended up going, to uh, going through Pakistan to sneak into Afghanistan. And he brought back a story that kind of established the narrative. And suddenly the media that wasn't doing you know, a, a totally great job, but there was definitely stories coming out that were trying to reflect some level of complexity at least. And all of a sudden it all shut down and Dan Rather's story came through. So you get the sense of the way the process works that sort of, and certain stories obviously are, are particularly critical. And the, the Soviet invasion of, Af of Afghanistan was so critical that we were, uh, you know, we were unaware at the time, obviously, of what Dr. Brzezinski had what, been doing, drawing the Soviets in, and how it became the neocon agenda that would rekindle basically uh, the the what they call the Vietnam syndrome was right, over. Once right. Well, Dan, Dan Rather, you know, uh, the JFK assassination. That he was a uh, local reporter there in Dallas, and that's okay. basically where he got his uh, mm -hmm. start on the national level. And he told a lie there. Basically, he said. Uh, his head went forward after the shot. And I mean, and, and a, a lie that is visibly wrong, you know, 
uh, there. So, um, well, cheaper too, yeah. yeah, I'd like to, uh, you know, just go to a, a different part of your story, because, you know, your story isn't just Afghanistan. There's there's a lot more to unpack in your story. Uh, Paul, your your last name is Fitzgerald, and, and you're related to Honey Fitz, who was uh, uh, JFK's grandfather. Now, right. uh, when you were a child, uh, was that a, a subject of, of conversation? Hey, you're related to the, the president. And then later on in your life, uh, people came up to you and because of the last name Fitzgerald told you things. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I know what it means now. And, and I know that the Fitzgerald name goes back to the, to the 11th century in Ireland. Okay, and before it was Irish, it was it was Welsh, and before it was Welsh, it was Norman French, and before it was Norman French, God knows what it was. But this was a, a group of people who were kind of, I believe it's referred to as the Regus Familiae back in the 10th and 11th, 12th century. They were a group of people, a family, that uh, in the Holy Roman Empire back in those days would travel, they would they would have different um, allegiances. Swiss Guard. You will see exactly that's that sort of thing, okay? But they had a they were more than just soldiers. They were lawyers. They were bankers. They were uh, ambassadors. They provided a loyalty. They were part of the the kind of an extension of the royal families for whatever royal family they happened to work with, whether it was in France or whether it was in Italy or whether it was in England, wherever it was, they became the familiars of the of the kingdom, and so they were they were the trusted lo loyalists put it that way. There's two, two branches of the Fitzgerald family, the ones around Dublin, the Leinster Fitzgeralds, and the Munster Fitzgeralds, and otherwise known as Desmond. This is South Munster in Ireland. The Desmond Fitzgeralds rebelled against the crown over a period of 100 years or so. You bad boy. I know. <laughs> this is all part of English, British history. And, and these guys were basically cast out of the British Empire for defying her royal majesty, Queen Elizabeth I. Forever, it says right in the document, you shall be banned from the empire forever. And so they went and they broke up the family into, they took all the family's holdings away. They had a million acres of land in Ireland and, and this part of the family. And so anyway, that's the JFK connection of the Fitzgeralds. Those Fitzgeralds and my father's family of Fitzgeralds were all part of one big family at one point. They went off and farmed all different lands and stuff uh, during the 18th and 19th century. My grandfather was a union official uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and he, he was having a meeting with Honey Fitz, who was the mayor of Boston at the time. And they sat and they compared notes, and they, they realized that, yes, indeed, they were very closely related. It's funny about this family is, is that there's a a real reluctance, it seems, to maintain these relationships. These th you're on your own. I mean, that's part of the thing about being a Fitzgerald. You know, if you're going to make it, you have to make it. You have to make a name for yourself, and you have to do it yourself. And that's been going on all my life. I was also, but I would meet people along the way who would say, "Oh, Fitzgerald. Oh, you're one of those guys." You know, and or I'd sit down and I'd sit down at a table at a function or something thrown at a Boston hotel and, they, and they'd see my name tag Fitzgerald and they go, oh, I see the Irish mafias out, out tonight, you know, things like that. You get those kind of comments all my life, you know. One of those comments came from a guy by the name of Ellard Lowenstein, a friend of ours 
had invited us to the University of New Hampshire to hear Ted Kennedy speak when he was challenging Jimmy Carter back in 1980 for the nomination, uh, the Democratic nomination for president, which the Carters were really not very happy about. 